What's up, everybody out there in listener land? Thanks for tuning back in. This is the Noggin Notes podcast, and we're at episode number 40. What a celebration. I'm, I'm really proud to have made it this far. Uh, didn't know where this thing would go, but uh, we're, we're at 40 now, which is uh, almost to 50. And once you get to 50, you're halfway to 100, and I think that's the real milestone. We'll celebrate that somehow in a very special way. But in the meantime, this is episode uh, 40, part two of our Rural Mental Health Overview Series, my interview with Adrian Sutherland continues. Adrian works up at Community Chest in Virginia City, Nevada. It's way up there in the mountains in the sagebrush in the desert with uh, wild horses running around and uh, old, old stuff. It's a really cool place to visit if you ever make it up to the Reno area. Definitely visit Virginia City and say hi to Community Chest. Check out communitychestnevada.net and feel free to donate. They're a nonprofit organization bringing really good services to a lot of really good people out in the rural communities of Nevada. So there's our, our co-sponsor today. In addition to my company, Zephyr Wellness, check out zephyrwellness.org and uh, go check out the YouTube channel. Feel free to subscribe to that. And of course, subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already, give us a rating and review on iTunes. That helps drive listenership, which of course, you know, just spreads the, the love and the joy and the knowledge to as many people as possible. We do this for free and uh, we just ask of you that you share this with other people. And so check out communitychestnevada.net, check out zephyrwellness.org. And in the meantime, listen to part two of our rural mental health overview with my interview with Adrian Sutherland. Thanks a bunch. Well, listening audience, welcome back to part two of our rural health care overview with Adrian Sutherland. Hi, still everyone. From, still from Community Chest. Still. Still from Community Chest. www. Dot. Do we need that anymore? We don't even need that anymore these days, do we? You just type it into your browser? I think it's just habit that I say www. Or maybe you're just showing off because you, you like just like enunciating things like how now brown cow. <laughs> I'm not even going to try that one. How now brown cow. Unique New York. WWW. Anyway, communitychestnevada.net. Yes. Communitychestnevada.net. Find out all that they do, or you can listen to part one of the series and find out all that they do. Uh, sometimes you uh, will remember stuff, maybe even in part two, about things that you do that you forgot about. I was just going to say, you may not get all of the information about what we do in part <laughs> one, because I could have forgotten. <laughs> That's a good tease, though, to, to listen to part two, and here we are with part two. So... <laughs> Um, part two is we're going to talk about bringing care to rural areas. I, I think that the assumption is that rural care, rural areas don't have the same level of or type of or diversity of care as urban areas. Mm-hmm. Fair? Absolutely fair. So what are we doing to bring care and what stands in the way other than the obvious, which is they're smaller communities. So, of course, they're going to have smaller amount of pool to draw from. I think one of the biggest situations or issues that I have faced is this idea of competency. And I think that there is so much fear within the helping professions of almost carving out what is what does each profession handle and almost to a deficit. And the reality is that we know that the number one predictor of success is relationship and Absolutely. rapport building. Yep. And so how do we translate that to also in – how do we increase the level of self-confidence of the helping professionals as well as their competence or do, to be done through development of competency to go ahead and serve these clients even if there isn't necessarily a mental health professional or multiple mental health professionals in the area? 
to define for the audience who may not know, competency has to do with the one's own belief that one is able to tr- to do something. So <laughs> I could believe that I'm competent to do this podcast because I've done several of them by now, uh, but my competency compared to someone who's been doing it for many, many years, like a Joe Rogan, is not at the same level. So I can speak to competency in comparison to others. Um, I can speak to competency based on my own personal experience, or I can go attend some courses maybe that deem me competent by some standard. So when we're talking about competency, it's the individual's ability to deliver something. Now, when we talk about practice, mm-hmm. that's a scope as authorized by law. Absolutely. So when, when you, and I, you and I sit here and we're what's called master's level clinicians because we have graduate degrees, master's degrees in our fields, counseling, for example, and there's a scope of practice as dictated by law in almost every state and country that says you're allowed to do certain things. And it, this umbrella is so big. If you don't have that training, experience, uh, education, whatever, then you can do other things. So I would not be deemed competent to cut hair. The licensing board that does barbers would not license me unless I had gone to school to cut hair. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get into a debate about whether or not licensing boards should exist. This is just a reality that exists in our world, and we have to acknowledge it. So below the graduate-level clinicians mm-hmm. is what we're talking about. Who can be competent to do things that maybe we're allowed to do, we've been trained to do, but who else could do those things without having to go get a full-blown graduate degree and plunge themselves into forty to $90,000 in student loan debt, right? Right. And again, since we're talking about rural mental health, the reality is that oftentimes that first interface with a client is done with somebody who is not does not necessarily have that graduate degree and all of the licensing behind them. And yet that experience can dictate how the person uh, further goes into uh, care. The, into care. Thank right. you. Yeah, so that the people could be someone like a school teacher. It could be a next-door right. neighbor. It could be uh, a, a, the, the employee at the sandwich shop down the road because they just go there every day for lunch. The domestic violence advocate that makes that first yeah. appearance on the the call that the sheriff The police office. officer, yeah, the, the sheriff, the yeah, a, right. any number of people exactly. who are not, you know, uh, we we tend to hold ourselves up in ivory towers I think sometimes in our field where we're like, "Well, you must send them to us. We are the only ones who know how to heal because we are the only ones empowered by the state to do so." And that's simply not true. I mean, our profession didn't exist until 100 years ago and we weren't even licensed until 60 years ago. So somehow humanity made it this far, (laughs) healing itself. And how did that happen? Well, one-to-one human connection. So our job now, I think, is to examine under the the scope of the laws that do exist, how to loosen the reins a little bit, maybe to get very, very competent people who are good at just listening and talking and solving problems and connecting resources Mm -hmm. and to empower them and fund them to do this. Yes. What's going on? How do we do that? What's being done now? I think that what what I have seen is it's usually those spontaneous moments where or those meetings that we're attending where we're working with case managers, advocates, school teachers when we're going to the school and those impromptu moments where we might be teaching them about something or having a discussion almost – I don't want to sound egotistical because it's not how I'm intending to come across as, but almost like a mentoring process. Mm-hmm. So these – and mentoring can go both ways, obviously, between both speakers. But when somebody 
comes in to another helping professional has been working with a client and has this what they might believe a deficit in their knowledge base taking those moments to mentor and coach them up yeah sure. exactly but and it's not necessarily a formal process but what i think it would be so amazing if we could create a broader scale yeah i think to this. i think what you're talking about is empowerment so if you have say a We'll just pick somebody at random from a school because there's lots of kids in schools and kids mm-hmm. have families and families tend to, you know, be the ones that surface with problems because the kids present as they're acting out or whatever. Grades are failing. So a school professional who's trained very well in, say, education knows really well how to teach. They don't necessarily know how to counsel and there may not be counselors in the area or the one counselor that's there is booked. So what do you do in, in, in as a stopgap? How do we empower those teachers maybe to have a a healthy conversation that's not condemning that doesn't try to diagnose doesn't try to push medicine uh you know during lunch break or during recess or whatever happens when the you know little johnny's crying because he's getting bullied how can you have a, a a good conversation maybe with some therapeutic skills Without right. calling yourself a therapist or even dancing into the realm of, well, little Johnny, let's have our counseling session for 10 minutes on the playground. Exactly. That would be wildly inappropriate. But Absolutely. what is appropriate is to empower them with, say, hey, you know, here's here's the four C's of parenting. Choices, consequences, consistency, and compassion. Let's let's teach this to mom when she comes in and she's complaining about Johnny not being able to, you know, put the dishes away. Right. And how do you how do you use reflective listening as opposed to questions? And how do you all those little micro skills validation? Right. Exactly. And the difference between validation and praise. And and but I also see this with sometimes there are the scary topics. You have somebody walk into your your office or this is a lot of times what I encounter with the case managers that I work with in my own agency there somebody walks in and expresses i don't want to be here anymore Mm -hmm. i'm done with this world and there immediately is this great sense of fear of oh my goodness i have to immediately call mental health mental health has to get on the scene and handle this client when the reality is it with a little bit of empowerment education practice mentoring whatever the process might be that case manager could go ahead and Screen, intervene. Yeah, yeah, intervene, screen, develop Say, safety plans. Yeah, so it sounds like sounds like you're talking about ending your life. You know, like really directly drive into it, and that's what you know the the Nevada Office of Suicide Prevention, for example, does those types of training so that you know quote unquote commoners can uh, can can handle those conversations without jumping right to the fear and pushing the red button, and then you know, and that's off putting to the client if we do that too. If if somebody gets referred immediately to this super high level of care. The client isn't interested in ever trusting that person again with that information. I was just going to say the relationship can become damaged. Mm-hmm. And, and it, really it's about knowing when you have to push it into or do that, look for other resources such as mental health. When is it appropriate to do that and when can you work on that on your own? So it sounds like what you're trying to advocate, and, and I, I'm putting words in your mouth here, is some cross-training. Absolutely. But not just training – I think that, as we know, you can go take a class, but then really where you learn is in the application of that material. So there has to be a mentoring system set up for – we have a really strong mentoring 
system set up for the master's level professionals. Right. We have to seek supervision. Internships, supervisors, multiple supervisors, yeah, site supervisors, all that stuff. Yeah. Exactly. But I that system is not so well established with other professions. Community health workers, um, educators, Advocates, even even, even first managers. responders, police yep. officers, firefighters, yeah, EMTs. So, yeah, I, I hear you. So not only just setting up the trainings, which everybody likes to do, and um, and it feels good. Hey, we, we did a training. We did six trainings this year. But then follow through. Um, yes. Practical application, um, a mentorship program. Hey, you know, I was your trainer for this class. Text me anytime to, to follow up. Or we can shoot articles back and forth. Or we can role play and, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, consult on uh cases or whatever the case may be. I think that's a good point. And it bridges into something that you and I talked about um, in between recordings here, which is the high level of acuity in rural areas. Yes. Spe- speak a little bit to that because that, that can be that can be overwhelming to uh, anyone, really, even, even licensed professionals. But especially when that's all you're dealing with all the time is high acuity. Yes. Maybe we should explain acuity too <laughs> first. Yes. And I think you're much better at explaining Don't gesture things. to me. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, acuity is the level of severity uh, with which something presents. So I can be uh, sort of suicidal, sort of thinking about ending my life if I go, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm considering not being here anymore. And it's just this passing thought. Or I can be high level acuity of suicidal ideation where I'm saying I have a plan. I know when I'm going to do it. I know I have access to it, and um, I'm I'm on a scale of one to ten. I'm I'm an eight and a half on seriousness. I am going to do it. So that's a high level of acuity. Low level of acuity is uh, much less intense. So mm-hmm. what we see in the rurals is high acuity, high intensity, high severity of a lot of these things. And w- what's the reason for that? You were sharing earlier. I think that part of the reason is because people have been out there for so long without the resources that are needed in order to uh, it's gradually been getting worse and all of a sudden now it's catastrophic Hmm. and so by the time that they are able to um, come in for services oftentimes you've crossed that threshold of what is manageable and what is not so a lot of times we see clients come in who have serious needs they not only need all their basic needs so housing uh food uh safety needs but also on top of that there's pretty severe mental health and you have limited people who are helping professionals who are able to address those needs and quite being being quite frank in in rural areas which we know tend to be more impoverished uh and and it tends to to float through generationally people Mm -hmm. people who are in rural areas tend to stay in rural areas they they have kids in their rural areas they 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 continue to to um to move through the lifespan that way the the chronic impoverishedness of the of the nature of rural areas tends to bring with it a lot of trouble a lot of chaos so if you don't have resources it's really hard to solve problems we mentioned in episode one the issue of a car breaking down could be a flat tire could be a dead cell phone if you don't have resources to begin with it's really hard to recover so the, the learned behavior here is either tough it out and then you don't attend to yourself and your self-care diminishes or, uh, forgive the language, all hell breaks loose and we see domestic violence, we see violence in general, we see neglect, uh, and not through any sort of sinister nature. It could just be uh, mom and dad are both working two jobs and the kids just kind of get 
neglected. Uh, they, don't, they don't get the attention that they, they need because the parents are scraping by. So uh, if, if one job goes down, it makes it doubly hard to recover because there's not a second job around because there's only four places to work within the surrounding area. So if a car tire pops, you know, you're, you're down a whole bunch. There's no neighbors to rely on, perhaps. And so just, there's compounding issues. I was just going to say that the isolation that's mm-hmm. out there in, in many rural areas. I mean, I think about Lyon County. I believe it's 2,600 square miles. And each of the four distinct towns have a completely different culture. They, they sure do. They C- sure do. And so how do you connect all of that? And when you look at your first responders like EMS or um, sheriff's office, those oftentimes are short-staffed themselves. And, I mean... And, again, it's a recruitment issue. How do you, uh-huh. how do you get people to work Retain out there? Retain people. Retain them, yep. Especially when they're facing high acuity all the time. The burnout rate tends to be higher. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of challenges with bringing care. The good news is there are a lot of people who are passionate about being out there. I, I certainly am one of them. You're certainly one of them. We've been doing it for several years. We don't intend on going anywhere. And if we can, we can expand it. So th- that's that's a really good positive. And I think that when you when you find people who are passionate about it, um, your boss certainly is one of those, uh, Eric Schoen, who deserves a hat tip from everybody in northern Nevada, quite honestly. Um, he is He is super passionate. And when you're around passionate people, the passion tends to rub off. Uh, yes. And I've been so fortunate to have had mentors like Eric and Sean, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the sure, founder Sean of the agency, mm-hmm. too. Just the compassion that goes into it and dedication and also willingness to think outside the box in order to creatively solve some of the issues that you're faced with. Yeah. I, we're going to wrap up here because that's uh, gone on long enough. And um, <laughs> so we, we covered in part one what is what is rural and what is urban? Why is it important? Why are we even talking about it? And in part two, we just finished up discussing, you know, how do we bring care to the to the urban areas? In part three, we're going to get into the politics and the funding issues. So uh, nothing like saving the hot topic for the end, but you're going to have to wait a week, and we will bring that to you next time. On behalf of the Noggin Notes crew and the entire Zephyr Wellness family, and now the Community Chest family, thanks, Adrian, for coming, and thanks to the audience for listening and we will see you next week with part three of our rural mental health overview on the noggin notes podcast thanks again